Jesus, may I speak as the oracles of God. May I minister with the ability that you supply, Holy Spirit. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. So, anybody know what we're studying? The book of Ephesians. Exactly right. And uh, we'll, get to it. we'll get to the book of Ephesians eventually. <laughs> tonight, we have been, but uh, I'm going to start out tonight with some other scriptures. And, and um, just a little bit of review, a little bit of background. Uh, the book of Ephesians, of course, is a letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a coastal city in Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. It would be the south or the west side, I guess the southwestern part of Turkey. Or, uh, but it was the most prominent city in that region of Asia Minor. And the Bible just calls it Asia, uh, but it was what we know as Asia Minor today. And again, um, a little bit of uh, the introduction to the book of Ephesians out of the Weymouth translation. Weymouth says if Ephesus was a well-known seaport and the principal city in Roman Asia. It was famous alike for its wonderful temple containing the shrine of Artemis and for its vast theater, which was capable of accommodating 50,000 persons. Paul was forbidden at first to preach in Roman Asia. And so they, Acts 16, 6 says, we tried to go into Asia, but we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And, um, but he afterward visited Ephesus in company with Priscilla and Aquila. That's found in Acts 18, 19. They only stayed a few days. And it says about three years later, Acts 19, 1. Imagine that. There's three years between Acts 18, 19 and Acts 19.1. When you read it, you can read it in five minutes and you think, oh, well, that took place the next day. It's three years. Um, so about three years later, in Acts 19.1, he came again and remained for some time, probably from 54 to 57 AD, preaching and reasoning in the school of Tyrannus until driven away through the tumult raised by Demetrius. He then went to Jerusalem by way of Miletus, but was arrested in the uproar created by the Jews and was taken first to Caesarea and then to Rome, and this was probably in the spring of 61 A.D. Late in 62 or early 63 A.D., this letter was written together with the companion letter to the Colossians. And as we pointed out in one of our sessions, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians are very similar uh, in their layout and in their subject matter both. And so... um, And so we talked about... We've talked about this before, but I want to reiterate it, that the birth of the church of Ephesus. That's recorded in there in Acts 19, 1 through 7, which we're not going to read tonight, but I'll summarize it. So Paul comes upon a group of 12 men that he assumes to be believers in Jesus. And he asked, remember the question he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, the Holy what? They said, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And uh, they were only acquainted with the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. And so on hearing this, Paul tells them about Jesus. Uh, They receive Jesus. They get baptized in water. And then the Bible says uh, Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak with tongues and prophesy. So that's the birth of the church at Ephesus. So the church at Ephesus began as a spirit-filled church. Praise God. So again, Paul spends the next three years there in Ephesus and a great work of God takes place. Many people come to the Lord. And over that time period, remember we read that all the people in Asia, in Asia, which we know as Asia Minor, 
Every person, all the Jews and all the Greeks, every person heard the word of the Lord Jesus. So everybody was evangelized. Everybody heard the gospel during that time. So that's, that's quite an amazing uh, testimony there. We will read a few verses in this, in this narrative, though, in verse 18 of Acts 19. This was after the uh, uh, incident with the seven sons of Sceva endeavoring to cast the demon out of the man. And uh, they were not authorized. They were, they were not believers in Jesus. They were just trying it because they'd heard Paul do it. So it was very, it was, uh, Paul, it was widely known that Paul was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so these seven sons of Sceva heard about it and they said, hey, we're going to try that. And of course, you know what happened. The, the demon, you know, spoke out of the man and said, I know, Paul, I know Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And beat them up and stripped their clothes off of them. And so, uh, and so uh, uh, when word got out about this incident in verse 18, it says, and many who had, who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. They realized, hey, we can't play around with the devil. We've got to get rid of anything that's connected with the devil. Uh, they came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Isn't that awesome to think about that in that city and in that region, the word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed. It prevailed over all the idolatry. It prevailed over all the occultism. It prevailed over all the sexual perversion. And that was, and all of that was rampant there in Ephesus. But the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed over all of it. And you know, that can happen today. Amen. And I believe it's going to praise God here in our nation and, and in other nations as well. And there were so many people that were getting saved and turning from idol worship to the living God that the craftsmen, you know, that made the idols, they were getting upset because their business was, was drying up. Nobody was buying their idols anymore. And I, why do I need that? I'm in contact with the living God now. He lives in me by his spirit. I don't need that stupid silver idol. Yeah, and so their business was drying up. And um, that's the reason there was a riot, and that's the reason that, that Paul was driven out of, uh, of the city eventually. So uh, there's some other things about, about the church at Ephesus. Timothy, and we've pointed this out before, Timothy was apparently the bishop or the overseer of the church at Ephesus. And so First uh, Timothy 1, verse 3, it says, and As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. And so, again, look at what Paul tells Timothy here. He says, when I went into Macedonia, I want you to do what? Remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So he was in charge. He was overseeing the, the elders or the leaders or the teachers and he said, you make sure that they're teaching no other doctrine. You make sure they're teaching sound doctrine. So he was like a pastor of pastors or like an overseer. Uh, the Bible uses the term bishop as well. That's why that's used in different groups and denominations today. Second uh, Timothy 2 verse uh, 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Timothy was a spiritual son 
to the Apostle Paul. He says, you, my son, be strong in the grace. And then the things that, that, uh, that Timothy heard Paul preach publicly, he said, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses. I'm sure they had times where they were alone or, or private, maybe just a few of them. And, and they would say, Paul, what do you think about this particular subject? And Paul would say, well, you know, the, uh, we, uh, this is what I think about it. And so he's telling, look, don't preach that, but the things that you've heard me speak in the presence of many witnesses. You know, there are some things that we may discuss in private and, or that we may discuss among ourselves that, that uh, you know, is, is, that doesn't carry the same weight as something that, that we would proclaim publicly. I've got some opinions about some things, but they're just my opinions. I'm not going to give you my opinions. I'm going to give you the Word of God. What I'm going, what I'm going to declare publicly, I want to make sure I'm giving you the Word of God, not just my opinion, okay? And so Paul was the same thing. He said, what you've heard, what you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. Well, how was he to do that? How was he to commit those things that he heard Paul speak in the presence of many witnesses? How was he to commit those things to faithful men? By teaching them, obviously. All right. Commit these to who? To faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we got really, we got four generations of truth here. You got the truth being shared four, four generations. You've got Paul, you've got Timothy, and you've got the faithful men that Timothy is to commit these truths to, and then they're going to teach others also. That's how the gospel is to spread and to multiply. Amen? Praise God. And when I say generations, I don't mean it has to take 40 years. For each, A generation in this case could be a week, a month. You know, and, but, it, but, but it can multiply that way. Amen, and it should. Praise the Lord. All right. So the church of Ephesus is also mentioned, as you know, quite prominently in the book of Revelation. It's one of the, it's one of the, the seven churches in Asia that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. In, in fact, uh, Revelation 1-4, the beginning of the, of the book of Revelation, it says, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So the book, of, the book of Revelation was written specifically, now it's for us obviously today, but it was written specifically to those seven churches in Asia. Among, among those was Ephesus. And so, uh, so we skip down to chapter 2. In verse 1 of Revelation, it says, To the angel, and uh, some, uh, uh, some Bible scholars say that this is referring to, the, the word angel there is messenger, all right, and it can be, or it can be translated messenger. Some Bible scholars say that that really should be to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, or in, in each of the churches, all right? So any of the, or it's possible, and again, I, again, I have my opinions, but uh, it's possible that each church had an angel assigned to it. So I don't really, you know, I don't know which is, which is the case, but uh, uh, at, at, at any rate... Um, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Of course, that's the Lord Jesus. Here's what he says. I know your works. Talking to the church at Ephesus. I know your works. <coughs> excuse me. Your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested 
those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So Jesus is commending the church at Ephesus for all of these things. He's commending them for the fact that they have, that they have uh, uh, weeded out the false, uh, the false apostles. And uh, you know, that needs to be done in our day. We need to discern true and false in, in ministries, po- apostles, prophets in every ministry. And he says, You've, uh, uh, you can't bear those who are evil. You know, they, they weren't compromising and tolerating and, and say, oh, well, let's just, you know, let's just go along. I mean, you know, the world has... I mean, you think about the culture that they were in back. It was a very uh, decadent culture back then. We, we talked about all, the, all that was going on. So it's not like they were just trying to, okay, we need to adapt to the culture. No, they, were, they would not bear. They were standing for truth and for righteousness. And Jesus commended them for all of that. And he says, and he said you've labored for my name's sake and you've not become weary. He says, nevertheless, he said, I have this against you that you've left your first love. That was the church that he wrote to and said, you've left your first love. Verse 5, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, their, their place of influence would be minimized or lessened, okay? So, but we, one thing we have to keep in perspective here, this letter that was written, addressed to, and written to the church and the things that Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, this is almost 40 years later than the letter that Paul wrote. Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesian church in 62 or 63 AD. This is around 100 AD, 90 or 100. So 30, uh, you know, 30 to 40, 30 to 40 years later is, uh, is, is when this is being written. And so uh, a lot can change in 30 or 40 years, can't it? Right? You can forget some things. A church can forget some things. And let them slip over a period of 30 or 40 years. And Jesus tells them to do what? Go back to the, to the first part of that verse, Curtis, if you would. And uh, he says, he said, uh, no, the first part of, of, there we go. Remember, therefore, from where you have, what? Fallen. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So they, they were occupying a lofty place in their authority in Christ and in the Spirit. And he said, you've fallen from that. And he said, remember that. Remember what's happened. And so uh, remember from where, where you've fallen. Repent. Do the first works. Go back and do some of those things you were doing at the beginning. Praise God. And so bottom line, though, of all, in all this is the book of Ephesians, what it is, is the inspired Word of God to us and for us today as New Covenant believers. Amen? So let's go to Ephesians now. I told you we'd get there eventually tonight. And, uh, and let's look at Paul's prayer again. That's kind of where we left off. Uh, we read the prayer and we talked about it. The prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to read through it and then connect with some things because what he begins to say in chapter 2 flows right from what he prays for them at the end of chapter 1. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, 
making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, own, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And it's hard to know where the prayer ends and where the teaching starts in here. All right. But this is not a low level prayer. It's an amazing prayer. And it's all about having our eyes opened, our spiritual eyes, our understanding, so that we would know who we are in Christ, what our position is, what our inheritance is, and that we would know the power and the authority that we have in Christ. And he continues, that's why I want to read that, because he just continues the same thought as he gets into chapter 2. Remember <coughs> this letter, when he wrote it, he didn't write it in chapter and verse. Uh, he's writing a letter. And uh, the translators added the, ch- uh, verse, the chapter divisions and the verses later to, to help us you know, be able to reference it and for clarity. And so, but he continues to talk about our authority and position in Christ. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of, the, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise God. We'll stop right there, talk a little bit about it. So he tells them, he says, we were dead. He said, you he made alive who were dead and trespasses and sins. And so that's toward us to us today. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Uh, God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Well, they didn't fall dead physically when they ate of the fruit, did they? But they died spiritually. They were separated from God. And that's the same thing that he's talking about here. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, you were separated from God. You, you were, we were under the control of the prince of the power of the air. We were living after the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and our mind. And then he says that we were by nature children of wrath. The problem was with our nature. The, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, modify our conduct enough to remedy the problem because it was deep deep. It was in our nature. He said, you were by nature children of wrath. Just as because of our nature being separated from God, we were in a position where we were under the wrath of God. 
but God who is rich in mercy. Hallelujah. God intervened. When we, were in that, when, that, when we were in that condition, separated from Him, dead in our trespasses and sins, under His wrath because of our nature, but God, who is rich in mercy. Hallelujah. You missed a good place to shout right there. Amen. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. How? What's the next, next phrase? Let's say those next three words together. Together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, here's a, here's a thought. Being, we, we know about being saved. We say, oh, oh somebody, they, they got saved on Sunday. They got saved in the jail. Well, you know what happened? They were made alive together with Christ. That's what saved is. He says, when we were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Oh, by grace you've been saved. So made alive together with Christ equals saved. That's what saved is. Amen? Praise God. But wait, there's more. That's not it. Verse 6. And, and he made us alive together with Christ, but that's not all he did. And he did what? Raised us up together. And that's not all. And made us sit together in the heavenly places. How? In Christ Jesus. Ephesians is filled with the great in Christ, in Him truths. And here's one of the major ones right here. We're made alive together with Christ. We're saved. We've been raised up together with Christ and we have been seated together with Him, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, this is speaking about our authority in Christ. Again, let's go back and catch something here in chapter 1, what he said back in chapter 1 to get the full understanding of what he's telling us right here now in chapter 2, verse 19 of chapter 1. And it's, it's next in the, in the flow there, yeah. And what is the exceeding, he said, he said, I'm praying for you that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where did he seat him at? Verse 21 tells us far above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at, at his right hand in the heavenly places, it was far above the demonic forces. We were made alive with him. We were raised with him and we were seated with him in that same place, far above, far above all principality and power. Amen? And Paul is not praying that God would do this for them. He didn't say, I'm praying that God would maybe one day uh, seat you in heavenly places in Christ. And he's not praying, I'm praying for you that, that, that if you're really good, if you do everything just right, that maybe one day you will attain to this place where you're qualified to sit with Christ in heavenly places. 
He says, no, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened, that you'll know and understand that you're there now. That it's already done. Amen. That you're already seated with him. Again, I want to read you uh, uh, just a little. I've read this before, but I want to read it to you again as it fits right here. The little book, The Authority of the Believer and How to Use It by Dr. Billy Brim. And she quotes from doc, from uh, Dr. Is it Dr. Or is it just John? <laughs> Curtis has the original book that she's quoting from. So uh, John, John A. McMillan. Reverend John A. McMillan. Okay. Uh, and so she's quoting from, from Reverend McMillan here. And he says this. The elevation of his people with him to the heavenlies. That's what we've just been reading. He's raised us up together with Christ. Made us sit together with him. The elevation of his people with him to the heavenlies has no other meaning than that they are made sharers of the authority which is his. They are made to sit with him. That is, they share his throne. To share a throne means without question to partake of the authority which it represents. Indeed, they have been thus elevated, they meaning us, believers, Indeed, they have been thus elevated in the plan of God for this very purpose. What is the purpose? That they may even now exercise, to the extent of their spiritual apprehension, authority over the powers of the air and over the conditions which those powers have brought about on the earth and are still creating through their ceaseless manipulations of the minds and circumstances of mankind. In other words, we now, as the church, we are to take our place seated with Christ in heavenly places and exercise our authority over demonic forces, over the principalities and powers that are operating in this earth, creating havoc, creating devastation, creating destruction. And he says, we, it says, we may now exercise um, authority over these powers of the air and over these conditions that they've brought about on the earth. We're to do something about the devil. Amen. Amen. And he said, they'll do it. He says that they may even now exercise. Here's the, here's the key phrase in all this to the extent of their spiritual apprehension, or we could say comprehension. This was written a long time ago. Uh, but, but to the, in other words, to the degree that we, under, that we truly understand our authority in Christ, that's the degree we'll exercise it. If we don't understand it, we won't exercise it. And that's why Paul was praying, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. I pray that you would see the place that you've been exalted to so you can exercise that authority. So you can rule and reign as a king, as, as Paul wrote to the Romans, that, that those who've received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign as kings in life. Amen? All right. Praise God. So let's go back to uh, Ephesians 2 again. And verse 4, we'll pick, pick up right there, and then we'll flow right on through and read some more here. Hallelujah. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Praise God. There was a, Brother Hagin told the story that years and years ago there was a little Pentecostal lady and, and her neighbors would make fun of her. They were, some of them weren't saved, some of them were probably denominational people and and they knew she was, you know, she was one of those Pentecostal people and believed in the Holy Ghost and miracles and speaking in tongues and all of that. And they would make fun of her. She was always going to church. And, and um, so she was getting ready to go to church one day and they were laughing at her and they said, hey, where are you going? She says, I'm going to the show. Oh, we didn't think you believed in that. Of course, the Pentecostals back then, you know, it was a sin to go to the movies. And so... Oh, we didn't think you believed in that. She said, yeah, I'm going to the show. He said, she said, I'm going to the show right here. I found out in Ephesians 2, 7 about the show, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to the show. Hallelujah. Well, we got a show to go to, folks. Amen. In the ages to come, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace. And it, this, is not, this is not all that, that we have. We've got the, we've got, he wrote to them in chapter one. He said, you've got, the, you've got the earnest of the inheritance now. You've got the Holy Spirit. But oh, there's much more. You know, uh, what, what's that? And blessed assurance, what's that line? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Well, what we have now is just a foretaste of glory divine. Amen. Hallelujah. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, verse 8, he reiterates that the truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the what? The gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace, you've been saved. And we know what saved means. Saved means made alive together with Christ. Amen. By grace, you've been saved through faith. So it's God's grace and it's the exercise of my faith. But even my faith came. How does faith come? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I can't even take credit for my faith other than the fact that I agreed with God and I chose to believe what I heard. And then I chose to act on it and say yes to Jesus. Right? Amen. So it's God's grace and it's my faith in that grace, believing the message of salvation, accepting it into my life. And that's what brings salvation to me. Amen. I didn't earn it. I didn't produce it. I simply received the free gift. Hallelujah. The grace and the faith both come from God. Not of works, he says, lest anyone should boast. Nobody can boast. Nobody can say, well, you know, you know what I did and, and God accepted me. You know what I did and now I'm approved by God. You know what I did and now I'm saying, no, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And uh, I want to read this, uh, Romans 3, 27 and 28 out of God's Word. Uh, Paul talks about this boast. He says, so, uh, New King James says, so where then is boasting? You know, is there any place for it? Uh, after he got through uh, 
third in Romans, he's talking about uh, faith. And he's talking about we're, we're justified by faith, not by our works. All right. And, uh, and so in verse uh, 27, he says, So, do we have anything to brag about? Bragging has been eliminated. On what basis was it eliminated? On the basis of our own efforts? No, indeed. Rather, it is eliminated on the basis of faith. Verse 28, we conclude that a person has God's approval by faith, not by his own efforts. Amen. So back to Ephesians 2, verse 10 again. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He, again, he's talking about who we are as new creations. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we've been made new creations in Christ, right? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what he's talking about here in Ephesians as well. We're his workmanship. We're created or, another, or, or really better to say it, recreated. Amen. Born again. Recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works don't produce salvation, but the good works are a result of salvation. Amen. The, good, the, the, the salvation produces the good works. Amen. Praise God. We're His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to read this to you all from the New Living Translation. It is so powerful in the NLT. Look at this in the New Living. For we are God's masterpiece. Think about that. We are God's masterpiece. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. Amen. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. He planned good things for us long ago, but because of sin and because of the fall, we couldn't reach those good things that He planned. But now, because of redemption, because of Jesus, because of the new creation, because of the grace of God, now we can enter back in and do those good things that God planned for us long ago. Hallelujah. Amen. I want to conclude by reading. Um, I thought, well, that's good. That maybe is too good, though. I, maybe, the, maybe the New Living Translation, maybe those translators, maybe they took it a little too far, saying that we're God's masterpiece. And so I, I went to my reference book. Uh, I've got two of these, uh, two versions or two volumes, Sparkling Gems from the Greek by Rick Renner. And uh, Rick is a, uh, uh, a Greek scholar. And uh, is really an apostle went to God. God sent him to the former Soviet Union right, right about the time the Iron Curtain fell and communism fell. And he established a work right there in Moscow. And they've and they've got churches and all over uh, that region, uh, the former Soviet republics there, uh, Lithuanian, Latvia and uh, former Soviet Union. And uh, they've just God's used him to do an amazing, amazing work there. But uh, he's a Greek scholar. And he's talking about this. He says, but wait, there's so much more 
that you've been given in Jesus Christ. For instance, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The first part of this verse says that you and I are God's workmanship. This comes from the Greek word poema. The word poema carries the idea of something that is artfully crafted. The Greek word for poet, poetes, comes from the same word. It is in reference to a poet, this Greek word would denote one who has the extraordinary ability to write or create a literary masterpiece. Because Paul uses, this word, uses the word poema to explain what happened to you when you became a child of God, it emphatically means that on the day you got saved, God put forth His most powerful and creative effort to make you new. Once God was finished making you new, you became a masterpiece, skillfully and artfully created in Christ Jesus. There's nothing cheap about you at all. God's creative, artistic, intelligent genius went into your making. I think some of you need to hear that again. Once God was finished making you new, you became a masterpiece, skillfully and artfully created in Christ Jesus. There's nothing cheap about you at all. God's creative, artistic, intelligent genius went into your making. Look how much you've been given in Jesus Christ. Don't you think it's time to stop moaning about how dumb, stupid, ugly, or untalented you feel compared to others? Those feelings are all lies. Some of that may have been true before you were born again, but none of it is true of you now that you are in Christ. God turned you into something spectacular. That's who you are now. So lay claim to your new identity. Adjust your thinking and talking to reflect who you really are. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we just thank you. We praise you for your word tonight, and I thank you for these precious people, and I pray your blessings over them, and I thank you, Lord, that, that each of us are going to, we're going to walk, Father, as your masterpieces. We're not going to believe the lies of the enemy about us. We're not going to believe the lies that we've told ourselves, but we're going to believe what you say about us. That's who we are. That's who we are. That's our identity, and we thank you, Father. We are who you say we are.